Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome again to New Books in Music. I'm your host, Jordan Stokes. Today, I'll be speaking to Jeffrey Baker of Royal Holloway University about his recent book, El Sistema, Orchestrating Venezuela's Youth, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. El Sistema, the massive Venezuelan youth orchestra program, has been hailed in some quarters as the next big idea in music education, if not as the savior of classical music itself. But any who have found the press coverage of El Sistema suspiciously rosy will find quite another account in Baker's engrossing and at times sharply critical book. Baker takes an ethnographic approach to El Sistema, investigating the daily lives and experiences of students and teachers while simultaneously drawing on recent research in music pedagogy to subject the structure and history of the program to an ideological critique. Jeffrey Baker, welcome to New Books in Music. Hi, Jordan. Why don't you begin by telling me a little bit about your background? How did you get into the academic study of music? Well, I took my time. Um, I, I started playing music when I was young, but I didn't start approaching it as an academic subject until my mid-20s, in fact, until master's level. Um, and I started doing a mixture of musicology and performance at Music College in London, and then got more and more into the musicology side, so ended up doing a PhD on music in colonial Peru, in fact. Um, so that was when my interest in Latin America began. And that then led you to your interest in El Sistema in particular? Yes, um, indirectly. I was working a lot in Latin America from the late 1990s onwards um, on my PhD and then subsequent projects. And I first heard about uh, El Sistema actually in an in-flight magazine on a flight, internal flight in Latin America in the early 2000s. And I was fascinated and I tore out this article from the in-flight magazine and stored it away, thought this would be a wonderful project to work on at some point in the future, but it didn't really fit with my plans or movements at that time. So it sort of sat there on the back burner as an idea for for a number of years. And then in 2007, the Simon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, the the top orchestra of El Sistema, came to London for the proms and made its debut at the proms that year. And I, having heard about the, the project, I bought a ticket and I went along to the concert. And it was that experience of going to the proms that catalyzed the decision to actually do this, to go ahead, to create a research project around this and go to Venezuela and do some original first-time research. The methodology that you use for this particular book is critical ethnography, which isn't something I imagine that you'd have too much call for if you're dealing with the colonial period. How did you decide on that particular approach? Well, I had already begun doing ethnographic work elsewhere, in Cuba, in fact, in the meantime. So I had sort of transitioned already to doing more contemporary work and using ethnography as a tool. And as the critical side, I think that, you know, that simply reflects the fact that um, I think all academic work should be critical. And I think that working on colonial music, on issues of, of colonialism and power in my PhD, although you know, relating to the distant past had, had alerted me to critical issues around the study of music that were always going to be there on some sort of level. And I do think that ethnography needs to be a way of critically interrogating musical cultures rather than simply you know, reflecting or reporting. Especially with something that's so systematic as well, you know, El Sistema, it's right there in the name, isn't it? 
getting down to the individual experience of it can really open our eyes to some things. Your, your sources for this work, there's hardly anything published outside of Venezuela that's critical about El Sistema, very, very little. Uh, so your sources have tended to be the published accounts from Venezuela, of which there are, even there, there are not that many. And then you have interviews, which a lot of them are anonymous, or you, uh, you indicate in the book that you've, you've changed the names of your respondents. And I assume that this is a, a methodological feature, right? That, uh, when you're, when you're dealing with critical ethnography, when you're dealing with a system that has as much power as, uh, as a system does, that you have to protect your respondents. But because a lot of the people who are listening to this have training essentially in historical fields and don't have to worry about those sorts of things, could you speak a little bit about your methodology and the way that you protected them? Yes. I mean, I think that it's worth bearing in mind that Anonymizing one's sources and indeed where one works is absolutely standard practice in education research, for example. So, you know, if you're going to write uh, an ethnography of a school, you would never say the name of the school. You'd never use the real name of anybody in the school, whatever you were saying about it. So this is absolutely standard practice. And indeed, this is commonly true in sociology anthropology and so on and so forth. There are exceptions. I mean, my previous work was on popular musicians and popular musicians like to be named because they want publicity, you know. But um, this, that would be the exception rather than the rule. So on one hand, this is just simply standard um, academic practice. On the other hand, as you say, our system is a very powerful organisation. It has a monopoly on classical music virtually in Venezuela. It has a zero-tolerance approach to criticism. So musicians who criticised um, the programme on record would run the risk of being fired or blacklisted. And I had m- numerous examples of people claiming that this had happened to them or people they knew. So this, the only way to do this kind of research was to anonymise it, and people would only, many people would only speak to me under those strict guarantee uh, of anonymity. And, you know, if any of your listeners are interested in following this up, there's been a recently a report was published by a senior researcher, director at New England Conservatory called Lawrence Scripp, who did a series of in-depth interviews with a former Sistema musician called Luigi Mazzocchi, this is now available uh, online, and in this they discuss this issue of anonymization. And Mazzocchi is actually the first musician in, I think, more than 15 years to go on the record under his own name and make the sort of criticisms that I make in my book. And he talks about the fact that when he decided to do this, other Venezuelan musicians said to him, you must be crazy, why are you doing this? You'll never work in Venezuela again. So he actually talked through this very issue in this article. That's great. We'll put a link to that on the show notes of the podcast so people can check it out easily. So turning to the book, it's organized in four parts. The first is the institution and its leaders, which lays out the history, structure, and demographics of El Sistema and unpacks some of the mythology surrounding its two most colorful figures, uh, Jose Antonio Abreu and Gustavo Dudamel. Parts two and three, which for me are really the heart of the book, are sort of complementary. El Sistema bills itself as both a program of musical training and as a mechanism for social change. And while you note that those strands can't really be untwisted, you sort of examine it through each of those lenses. Um, And then in part four, titled Impact, you zoom out to a broader frame, considering the economic effects of El Sistema, uh, to the extent that these are knowable, its effects on Venezuelan musical culture, and finally, zooming out even farther, uh, you compare El Sistema with other programs that attempt to combine music education with social action in other Latin American countries and around the world. But before we dive into all of that, 
Um, I think that most people listening to this will have heard of El Sistema, uh, but they might not know anything very specific about it beyond the idea that there is this massive music education program in Venezuela, which has produced a ferociously talented youth orchestra and in the person of Dudamel, a real superstar conductor. So can I begin by asking you just to explain to us what El Sistema is? Yes, El Sistema was created, in effect, in 1975. It didn't start as El Sistema. It started simply as a national youth orchestra, as a single orchestra, which was created by José Antonio Abreu in that year. And um, several years later, he became more ambitious and created a foundation to support a wider range of youth orchestras, a larger number. And simply this programme expanded and expanded and has been expanding ever since, And now, 40 years later, it is a nationwide programme. The official figures state that there are 700,000 participants in over 400 music schools. And it is effectively an expansion, a multiplication of this original idea, which was to train up young people to fill Venezuelan professional orchestras, which in the mid-1970s were staffed mainly by foreigners. And these individual music schools, or nucleos, they're called. Can you explain what the structure of one of those would be? They're a kind of pyramidal structure in a sense, because the ultimate aim of the nucleo is to produce a youth orchestra, a high-quality youth orchestra. And it's worth pointing out that youth in Venezuela is taken quite liberally. So you'll often have people in their mid or late 20s in youth orchestras, whereas in the UK, for example, one would expect to find people maybe up to 18, 19, 20, 21 at the most. Um, so at the top, if you like, of the pyramid of the nucleus is the youth orchestra, and the top musicians from that orchestra will then be siphoned off for the national level youth orchestras, like the Simon Bolivar. Um, and then below that, are a series of training orchestras. You have a start orchestra, and then you have a next level orchestra, and then you have the youth orchestra and the regional orchestra and so on. So there's a very kind of clear hierarchy of orchestras. And at the bottom, well, lots of young musicians, lots of children feed in, start learning instruments, and steadily... You know, the numbers get refined, the more skilled ones stay, the less skilled ones go or get bored or leave. And one is left with uh, the youth orchestra. So there is individual training in the instrument and then the orchestra program in this this pyramid scheme, essentially. Pyramids within pyramids, it seems like. Exactly. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. And yes, so the, the children and young people receive individual tuition and a lot of group tuition, which is something that's quite distinct about El Sistema. The hours of group tuition are very high compared with other countries. So, for example, when they're starting out, really just beginning to play their instruments, in the main school I studied, they were receiving four and a half hours a week of group tuition in a sort of orchestral format. And by the time they reached the top-level youth orchestra in the nucleo, they were rehearsing five or six times a week. And uh, on top of that, there is indeed individual tuition, but there's much more of a focus on orchestral rehearsals as the primary method and means of educating young people in music. And then switching to the, the social side of the program, the myth, at least, is that many of these students come from the most at-risk segments of Venezuela's society and that El Sistema is elevating them out of poverty. And there are some specific cases of this that have been widely reported. And this is stepping slightly out of the order that you come to these issues in the book. But this turns out not to be the most usual case, correct? Like, who are the people in El Sistema, mostly? Well, this is still very much disputed. And indeed, there are no reliable facts and figures that one can draw on in order to make any assertion about this. So I proceeded ethnographically by interviewing lots of people and talking to people who had been involved in the project for uh, years or decades, as well as looking at a couple of nucleos in a lot of detail. And what I saw and heard indeed in interviews was that the 
cases that we hear so much about, about people being rescued from desperate poverty, were the exception rather than the rule. Now, a lot depends on geography. There are hundreds of these schools around the country. And of course, if you go to one that's situated in a particularly poor area, you'll find a much higher percentage of people from poverty. But a lot of the schools are not located in areas of particular poverty. And in those places, you'll find a pretty normal cross-section of society there. There may well be a few poor people, there may well be people from relatively high social class, and a lot of people in the middle, from aspirational working class, lower middle class, middle class, and so on. And this is something that's been reflected in both published and private conversations as well and interviews, is that uh, there's a lot of scepticism, actually, from Venezuelan musicians about the sorts of claims that have been made around the social makeup of El Sistema, which don't seem to be supported in reality. Now, you begin your book by discussing José Antonio Abreu, El Maestro, who is the prime mover behind El Sistema and likely the man most responsible for its successes as well as for its failures. Both in El Sistema's own publicity materials and in your own more critical account, it feels as if El Sistema sort of emanates from Abreu. It all depends on him. There's a lot of colorful detail in this section of the book, which for the sake of time, I think we'll need to gloss over. But what are the things that you think listeners have to understand about Abreu in order to understand El Sistema? Well, I think the first thing is simply the fact that he created it in 1975 and he is still nominally in charge today. So he has been in charge of El Sistema for 40 years. The next thing is that, as you say, it, whether you talk to his fans or his critics, there's universal acknowledgement of, of the fact that El Sistema is his brainchild and is, in a sense, his, his interests, his personality, his preoccupations writ large, now writ on a, on a national scale. And I think one of the things that's most interesting to know about him is something that's not very well known outside of Venezuela, because he's been projected in the international press in recent years as almost a revolutionary figure, as a social reformer, and has become beloved of liberals and progressives uh, in other countries. But in fact, his trajectory is as much in politics as it is in music, and is on, uh, on the right wing of politics. So his earliest political experiences in his uh, early 20s were together with some of the people who went on to become very important figures in right-wing politics in Venezuela. And in fact, Abreu became a politician, became a deputy in parliament uh, in his 20s. And uh, his associations were with some rather, in fact, unsavoury figures on the right of Venezuelan politics. And he then went on to become Minister of Culture under the neoliberal administration of Carlos Andres Perez between 1989 and 1993. So his if you like, his political trajectory, his political background um, up until the late 1990s was very much on the right. Then, of course, Hugo Chavez was elected as president and came into power in 1999. And suddenly the country made a major swing to the left. And somehow, through political astuteness, above all, Abreu managed to stay in power in his position at the head of El Sistema. And indeed, his power in many ways increased after the election of, of Chavez. But what we find today is this extraordinary example of a right-wing political figure who's managed to maintain uh, considerable power under a left-wing government and become beloved of progressive and liberal music lovers, education, so on and so forth around the world. And it sort of stands to reason then that while El Sistema is often seen as a social program with largely left-wing leanings, there are aspects of it which, as you say, make it seem like it might be a religious order, make it seem like it might be a corporation, make it seem like it might be a sort of state within a state, all of which sort of lean on Abreu's own background in various ways. Absolutely. So he's well known to be a highly religious figure. 
and uh, both his own discourse and that of uh, senior people in the program are, are heavily imbued with religious metaphors, religious language. He also has training in management, and as you say, his management and business background, he's, he's trained in economics, very much permeate the organisation as well, giving this character of a corporation, of a, you know, a large business organisation in some ways, and indeed it does have a, a business aspect to it. And then because of his background in politics and having been a minister, it also operates as a state within the state in the sense that it very much makes its own rules and doesn't seem to have to abide by the kinds of rules that one would expect a state foundation to abide by. So in many ways, Abreu has kind of managed to leverage his own background, his own training, his own experience into creating this very independent, powerful organization. So the source of all of it is Abreu. Now, the most prominent products of the system, I would say, are on the one hand, as you've mentioned, the Summon Bolivar Youth Orchestra, which is now just the Summon Bolivar Orchestra, correct? That's right. And then Gustavo Dudamel, the famous globetrotting conductor. And then if you go to Venezuela, you have the CASMs, or at least the central one in Caracas, yeah. which is another very visible, very glamorous product of this whole program. Can you talk a little about each of these? Absolutely. I think it's worth pointing out that because Gustavo Dudamel lives in Los Angeles and only visits Venezuela occasionally, he wasn't really a central focus of my research as such, because my research was based on ethnography on the ground in Venezuela. But I couldn't help but be interested by this figure, indeed fascinated by this figure, because he's such a, well, he's obviously such a high profile figure, but he's such an extraordinary one as well, in the sense that on the one hand, he is lauded by Venezuela's Bolivarian revolution. In other words, he's held up by socialist leaders in Venezuela as an icon. And he has very close relationships formerly with Hugo Chavez and now with President Nicolas Maduro. On the other hand, he also serves as an icon of the music business in general and of the LA Philharmonic in particular in the United States, which in some ends represents the most capitalistic extreme of the classical music industry. So he seems to straddle both the kind of socialist and capitalist worlds. And also in terms of his reputation, he's widely considered to be uh, particularly popular, to be considered a radical figure, a revolutionary figure, full of this youthful radical fervour. And yet actually, in, in terms of the organisation that he represents, El Sistema, and indeed his programming with the Simon Bolivia Orchestra, it's actually a very conservative model and it's a very conservative choices being made in terms of how the orchestra runs, in terms of the music they play and so on and so forth. So there's this very interesting tension between uh, apparent radicalism and, and actually quite deep-rooted conservatism, both in him and in his orchestra. Now, with regard to the, the CASM, which is the Centro de Acción Social por la Música, or, or Centre for Social Action Through Music, this is a, a huge, spectacular building that was constructed in the early 2000s, opened around 2008, uh, a vast uh, music centre, conservatoire in the centre of Caracas. And I became very interested in this and another one that's being built next door to it, because they are spectacular buildings. Huge amounts of money were put into them, money that came from international development banks, interestingly enough, um, in the first case from the Inter-American Development Bank. And these buildings put many conservatoires to shame uh, in the global north, for example. Yet they seem to represent a kind of concentration and spectacularization of resources. And when I went outside of Caracas and went to small nucleos in the surrounding areas and out in the provinces, there were serious lack of resources. Uh, a lot of nucleos didn't have their own buildings and worked in, operated in 
or in facilities. So they seem to somehow represent both the centralizing and the spectacularizing aspects of the project. Which sort of plays into that pyramid structure that you were talking about before. The center does need to be spectacular. If you think of the whole thing as a project for collecting as many musicians and as much wealth as possible into these few central facilities, then it's working tremendously effectively, right? Absolutely. And, you know, there is a logic to this centralization and this uh, spectacular approach. I mean, it has worked in the sense of attracting the attention of the world. And, you know, classical music does tend to do this. Uh, symphony orchestras are urban organizations. They do draw in musical and other resources from surrounding areas. So it's not unexpected or illogical. The problem comes when one tries to think about this as also a social program, as also indeed a community program, and then starts to think about the effect that such a centralising organisation has on musical culture more widely in Venezuela, though I suspect that's an issue we're going to come back to later on since it's one I treat towards the end of the book. Yes, absolutely. But I think this actually pivots quite nicely into the next part, Part two is all about the orchestra and the emphasis that El Sistema places on the orchestra. And your point that the orchestra is sort of, by its very nature, going to be a centralizing thing, just because you're getting that many people together in a room to play music, and that the structure of the orchestras in Venezuela, at least in El Sistema, tends to be rather conservative. And that's not just there. It's sort of the structure of orchestras almost everywhere is rather conservative. So... Explain again the centrality of the orchestra to El Sistema's program, and then explain why, as your research shows, the orchestra is sort of a troubling model for music education and social action. Well, the centrality of the orchestra comes from somewhere quite simple, which is we just need to go back to the reason that the program was created in the first place. Abreu was a conductor as well as a politician, and he wanted an orchestra, so he created one. Um, and there were other reasons, you know, there were good reasons to create a youth orchestra, to stock Venezuelan orchestras, as I mentioned before. Um, as the programme has grown and it's needed to justify its funding and its existence, uh, its expansion more, increasing numbers of arguments have started to be made around the orchestra about the benefits it brings in terms of music education, in terms of social education and so on and so forth. But those kinds of arguments have really been scrutinised. And in fact, if one turns to scholarship to, to academic studies of orchestras, one finds a rather less rosy picture. So scholars have been fairly critical of orchestras as musical organisations, as, as musical microcosms. So you know, there are definitely tensions here. And this is one of the things that struck me quite early on was this really quite stark tension between this rosy, enthusiastic, laudatory uh, language around the orchestra and the realities of orchestral life that were being portrayed by ethnographers, sociologists and others who had studied orchestras. In many ways, the structure of an orchestra, or let's say a conventional orchestra, because there are orchestras that break the mould, but a conventional stereotypical orchestra with its sort of all-powerful conductor and meek musicians who obey his orders is quite obviously a rather problematic structure for society, which is what's claimed What's claimed is that El Sistema and the orchestra in particular provides actually a model for society, a positive model for society. But in fact, I think it's worth asking ourselves, you know, what would it be like to live in a society which actually functioned like an orchestra? I think that if we look to detailed studies of what it's like to be a professional orchestral musician, that raises a lot of questions. One of the studies that you cited seemed to suggest that 
the more control over the running of an orchestra the players have, uh, not in a direct linear relationship, but they would tend to have slightly less good musical outcomes. Whereas the the technique that seems to create really, really perfect performances is to treat the players absolutely terribly and have them be miserable and non-actualized and sort of infantilized and all of these these horrible outcomes. And that's the whole mythology of El Sistema depends on that not being true, right? Maybe not even El Sistema. Your critique expands to the whole notion of a youth orchestra, correct? Well, uh, I mean, I think your original characterization comes from Richard Hackman's exhaustive work on orchestras, where he does indeed make this connection between, on the one hand, authoritarianism and musical quality, and the other hand, a greater degree of democracy, and a slight lessening in musical standards. And that's very problematic for El Sistema, which is built on the claim that you can have both musical and social excellence at the same time. And his work, which is empirically grounded, suggests that this may not actually be the case. Uh, In terms of a wider critique, I think that the youth orchestra is both potentially a valuable and potentially problematic model and tool for music education. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that it's all bad. I played in a youth orchestra myself and enjoyed it. And I would certainly not want to discourage other people from playing in a youth orchestra or to see this opportunity to disappear or anything like that. But I do think there are all sorts of problematic dynamics that emerge in youth orchestras. And this is something that's been studied quite abundantly by music education scholars who have raised all sorts of questions about this. So I think there's a need to try and seek out the good aspects of playing in a youth orchestra, which is, you know, there's wonderful music to be played, There are wonderful sensations to be had through performing great orchestral music, but there are all sorts of problematic power dynamics that can go with that as well. And I think that it's important to take a critical view of youth orchestra and see how a youth orchestra could be maybe reformulated in the the way it works in order to allow young people to have access to this music, to performing this music, um, without having to undergo the sorts of problematic educational experiences that often accompany it. I just sort of remember my own childhood experiences playing in youth orchestras, doing other musical things. The sense that by striving for absolute musical perfection, I was bettering myself as a whole human being is something that I accepted so uncritically. And of course, you know, I was a child. I don't blame myself for accepting it uncritically then. But it was very natural for me when I first started reading about El Sistema to to swallow the official line whole. Because it's sort of what I remembered engaging with in a much, a much less intense way in my own childhood. So I think the reminder to be critical about these things is a, a very important one. Moving on to the second part of this chapter, the orchestral experience in El Sistema is a pedagogical one. We've talked about the students. The teachers are the other side of that coin, although in some cases they turn out to be the same people, right? There's a lot of student teaching. Can you speak a little bit about the conditions of the frontline teachers in El Sistema? This is very striking. And as you say, indeed, a lot of the teaching is actually done by students, given that students may well continue in the programme until their mid to late 20s, and yet they may actually start teaching in their teens. So there is a big overlap between the two. But one thing that struck me was, considering how much money this programme has and how much money is spent when the Simon Bolivar Orchestra tours around the world, for example, was actually how little remained by the time money and resources trickled down to the front line. So I found teachers were very low paid and working often in very poor conditions, in fact. And there were a lot of complaints. There were indeed people complained precisely about what I've just said. They saw 
you know, pictures of the orchestratoria in the world. They read newspaper articles about it. And they said, you know, how come they have all these you know, fantastic top-of-the-range instruments and you know, staying in five-star hotels and playing the world's great concert halls? And here I am trying to teach these kids in a school. We haven't, you know, we haven't got any violin strings. When someone breaks a string, we can't do anything. Or we haven't got any reeds for the oboes or the clarinets, you know. Uh, what happens when my student breaks a reed? So actually, I found a lot of disgruntlement on the front line among teachers. And indeed, just basic economic realities meant that there was a very high turnover of teachers because often musicians couldn't afford to make a living through this. And after a while, sooner or later, they'd have to consider moving to another line of work in order simply to survive. So there was a lot less of the sort of rosy picture that one sees overseas when I got down to the, you know, the condition, the everyday conditions in everyday music schools. And when there are these senior students being told to go out and teach in some of the satellite nucleos, if their teaching duties conflict with one of their performances in one of the major youth orchestras, they're instructed to skip the class and go do the performance, right? Again, with lots of music schools, it may differ, but that's what I saw. And the examples where I was looking closely was that performance took priority over teaching. And generally speaking, one of the things that I found was that there was a very high rate of absence, of absenteeism on the part of teachers, because they were performers, they were students, they were teachers, they needed to practice. And if, if something had to give, it was often the teaching. So often, you know, students would turn up for lessons and the teacher wouldn't arrive because they were busy doing something else or, you know, who knew why. But, I, you know, I, I wouldn't blame that on teachers. I would say that there's a lot of pressures on them and the work was difficult and not very well remunerated. And I'm not surprised that a lot of them ended up relegating it to last place. Another thing that's worth raising that context is also the fact that because uh, teachers tended to start teaching when they were very young, they almost always began teaching without any pedagogical training. The general line in our system is you teach as you were taught. And what this means is that the kind of conservatism of the programme is very much reflected on the level of pedagogy because there's very little in the way of innovation or new inputs in terms of pedagogy, in terms of the actual teaching. Teachers pass on their skills, their abilities, but also their defects, their students, who then pass them on to their students and so on, it passes down through the project. And there's relatively little interest on an institutional level in new pedagogical techniques and new ideas and new research and so on and so forth. So what I found in 2010, 2011, when I was there, watching lessons in classes was really indistinguishable from what I had grown up with in the 1970s and 1980s in Europe. Which does pose a problem for a mode of music pedagogy, which is supposed to be the next big thing that's going to sweep the world and so on. Absolutely. And I think that's you know, one of the major contradictions or paradoxes around this is that it's actually the last big thing rather than the next one. It very much draws, and as I say, it was really indistinguishable from education that I received 30 or 40 years ago, which in turn draws very heavily on educational traditions from the 19th century and earlier. So it's very much backwards looking in terms of its pedagogical Techniques. And that's not to say that teaching is bad any more than I thought that my own music education was bad. It wasn't. I was very lucky. I had excellent teachers, very good teachers. But nevertheless, the idea that there's something innovative or something that the rest of the world can look to to learn from on a level of pedagogy is frankly delusional. I mean, you look at the Simon Bolivar Orchestra and you have 
this ensemble, which at various times in its history has had very young people in it and is performing at this great level. But one of the things that you say in the book, which I think is quite convincing, is that, well, if you have that many children practicing for that many hours and you take the best 100 or 150 of them or however many it is, you will end up with almost inevitably a pretty amazing ensemble. So just that can't then prove anything about the quality of the pedagogy for the average member of the program. Absolutely. I mean, as you just said, you can't make assumptions about the education being received by hundreds of thousands of people by looking at the top 100 or 150. And, and also, you have to remember that that orchestra is and was, even when it was a youth orchestra, was a professional orchestra in the sense that it was a full-time orchestra in which the participants were paid very high salaries. So it's not just that this is the top 0.1% of the programme, it's also that their rehearsal and practice schedule is something that's out of all proportion to the kinds of thing one would find in the United States or the UK uh, in terms of the amount of time that, that the students are actually spending working as an ensemble. So really that, that ensemble, what it tells us about is, is intensive study over many years with very high incentives rather than about the pedagogy of LC Stemmer for the average student. So let's move on to the third part of the book then. If it turns out that El Sistema's music pedagogy, while it has certain undeniable results, is not perhaps so radically new, the other side of the program that its defenders will point to is the social action, its ability to transform Venezuelan society for the better, sort of from, from the children on up. The first thing that you bring up is the question of whether there was ever supposed to be a social side to El Sistema. It seems like the story has changed over time. Yes. This is a difficult topic to research because there are no publicly available documentary records against which one can check this. But I was very intrigued to discover when I started interviewing older musicians, musicians who were involved in the project um, from the start in the early days, and they all said the same thing. They said at the beginning there was no talk about social action, social inclusion or anything like that. It was just a youth orchestra. They went there to make music. They went there to train for professional musicians. And at some point, roughly halfway through the programme's history, so we're talking about roughly the mid-1990s, suddenly Abreu and his minions started talking about social action and social inclusion and so on and so forth. Instead of saying it was actually a social project and it was for rescuing children from poverty and so on and so forth. And this apparently, this it happened fairly suddenly, happened fairly quickly. And now this is a, the dominant narrative. And now uh, many people talking and writing about El Sistema project this backwards and say that Abreu had this vision of transforming Venezuelan society through orchestras and that there was this idea of social transformation there from the start. I can't say with 100% certainty that wasn't true, but I can say with 100% certainty that there's no evidence yet been presented for that, and there's plenty of counter-evidence. And that might not matter so much if the program had changed over time to make this a, a real focus, but do you feel like social action is part of day-to-day -day life in Sistema? Well, this is precisely the point. In a sense, what seems to have happened was that there was a sudden change in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the discourse around the program, but it wasn't matched by a change in terms of pedagogy, in terms of the organisation of the structure of the project or the aims or the day-to-day -day activities. So, you know, I've found and others have found who have looked at the programme with, with, a, with a critical eye is if you go into uh, Sistema Nucleo, generally speaking, you don't see anything that could really be categorised as uh, social work or social action. 
what you see is young children or older children or young people learning classical music, rehearsing in orchestras, having lessons, practicing, performing, and so on and so forth. But anything that you could say, ah, no, this is not actually just standard music education. This is something different. This is something socially oriented. It's, it's very hard to find. It's very hard to see. And you go on to point out a couple of aspects of the program, which in addition to not being apparently geared to function as some sort of social action, might actually be actively harmful. So for instance, the role of the money that the players get, the, the scholarships, which are really for the top orchestras more like salaries. This is a complicated thing. You know, I mean, you can, you can understand, especially if some of these students are coming from the very lowest ranks of society, then giving them some money could be all to the good. But then if that might not be the case, and then there are other harmful effects that you point out. Yes, yeah, so I think that the paying of salaries or scholarships or whatever you want to call them to young musicians it raises all sorts of problems. I mean, from a research perspective, it raises a big problem over to what extent is any action that one sees due to the power of music and to what extent is it to do with the power of money. Certainly, one could make a good argument for saying that children who come from really deprived circumstances um, might need this kind of financial incentive or support in order to be able to do this kind of thing at all. And I'm sure in the case of some musicians in our system, that is true. The question is, and the unanswerable question is, what percentage of young musicians who are paid by the programme are actually in need of this money? Certainly, the main music score that I studied, there was hardly anybody there, if anybody at all, who really needed this money as opposed to regarded it as a nice bonus. And often they spent it on unnecessary things, frankly, things, you know, nice clothes, a nice pair of trainers, a nice mobile phone, that kind of thing. So it was clear that a lot of money was being spent. This is money that's coming from social funds and often from development banks. It's being spent to subsidise non-essential uh, expenditure by effectively middle-class young musicians. But also, you know, there are interesting questions about what the impact of this kind of pseudo-professionalisation has on music making by young people. And I wouldn't want to say it's necessarily negative, but I wouldn't want to say it's necessarily positive either. And I was interested to hear young musicians in conversation with me and with each other talk about how the introduction of salaries and scholarships had actually in some ways degraded the kind of culture around music making by making it much more materialistic. And then another uh, sort of parallel problem is that they can't leave. They begin to depend on this money, even if they're not spending it on necessities. And therefore, whatever the orchestra asks them to do, they kind of have to do it. And then the demands that the orchestra is making are, are often quite extreme. Absolutely. And given that they are paying young people proper salaries, they are effectively employees. And they are, are employees with very few rights. And they do pretty much have to do what they're told. So it creates a very different kind of dynamic, really, uh, the paying of, of salaries and scholarships. And it does really transform what one might think of as a program that could be based around ideas of play and creativity and freedom and self-expression into something much more rigid, I suppose, much more serious, much more, yes, much more rigid. That point on rigidity, I think, is an important one, because the next section you begin to bring up the theories of Michel Foucault and talk about how the orchestra in general and perhaps the the particular model of the orchestra that you see in El Sistema is a disciplinary organization par excellence. And that this is, again, if you're thinking of the orchestra as a model society, perhaps not the society that we would really want to model. Yes, I think discipline is one of the key issues 
in El Sistema in my book, and um, because it's one that the program itself holds up is absolutely central to what it does. So this isn't something that I had to kind of winkle out through uh, careful ethnography. It was there everywhere. And whenever I interviewed somebody, whenever I looked at publicity materials, there it was, discipline, almost always the first or one of the first words to be mentioned. And indeed, you could see it very much in the way that rehearsals worked, in the practices that people talked about, the way their teachers treated them, discipline is held up as positive, as a central uh, value in the programme. And of course, as you mentioned, Michel Foucault is somebody who has analysed this in, in considerable depth, has theorised this in considerable depth. And reading his book, Discipline and Punish, was one of the moments in this project when really a light bulb went off in my head, because I suddenly I saw page after page, I just saw connection after connection between what he was talking about in disciplinary institutions, in 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and the orchestra in general, and El Sistema in particular. And I came to see both of these as very clear examples of disciplinary institutions. And indeed, I think there are historical connections between the sorts of examples he holds up in his book, a lot of which focus around a period in the middle of the 17th century, and the orchestra, which was also born in this same period, indeed, according to some histories, in the same place the French court at this time. So I think they're very tight theoretical historical links between the orchestra and Foucault's theories. Now, if you think of all that discipline as a way to create musical excellence, then you might have a point. Uh, you could argue whether it's worth it, but definitely that's a familiar idea. If you think of the discipline as a way to create social action, which is definitely part of the argument, the only way that that makes sense, and I think this is, again, something that pretty much comes directly out of the stated goals of El Sistema, is to say that the culture that these students are currently enmeshed in through their families, through the communities that they live in, is bad for them, and that they need to be removed from that and sort of disciplined into a different kind of culture to make them into a different kind of people. Absolutely. And I think that, well, and to take the last point first, it's really quite striking how negative the view of Venezuelan society is on the part of El Sistema. So one finds extraordinary statements, really, in mission statements and so on and so forth. I mean, here's one which I always remember because it's so notable, which is the program itself describes itself as rescuing children and young people from an empty, disorientated and deviant youth. So it's a very dark picture, which in a way justifies this disciplinary action that the programme openly carries out. And I think that the, the way to think about discipline for me is that, and this again draws very openly on Foucault, is that discipline is very productive. So if you want to maximise outputs and results and so on and so forth, discipline has very productive effects. And you only need to look at, the, say, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra and you see the productive results of discipline. But this productivity also has its costs. These costs tend to be social costs. And this is where I think you know, the balance between the musical and the social becomes interesting in the case of El Sistema, because you know, following Foucault's ideas, we can see how this, the cost of this kind of very tight discipline that one finds in the orchestral performance is a certain what he calls docility or conformity on the part of those who make up uh, this social body, and also a loss of political agency. And I think this is very important as well when we start thinking about questions of citizenship, which are very central to El Sistema's discourse and the discourse of its major international funders. The idea that El Sistema is a programme 
forging citizens, forging young people into citizens of the future. And I think the loss of political agency that occurs through this heavy-handed discipline really undermines this idea that what El Sistema is promoting is citizenship. I think these two ideas are completely contradictory. And it's interesting. You bring up some earlier social musical programs, I I believe in the United Kingdom, where they were trying to give music to the poor in order to make them more docile factory workers and coal miners and things like that. Uh, But the economic reality that's facing these young Venezuelan citizens isn't even one where being a, a docile factory worker could secure you a comfortable existence for the rest of your life. Right. It's a that's sort of, again, the the last big thing. So even assuming that it works, it may not be working in the way that that people actually need. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it, really, because in a sense, this is very similar to the kinds of mass music education programs that emerged in the UK and other parts of Europe and Germany in the early 19th century as part of the expansion of capitalism to create these docile, productive workers. And you know, while that would have made sense from one perspective, if not, if also at the same time being highly criticable from another, um, it might have made sense in the early 19th century. What role this plays in the early 21st century in countries which have a huge informal economy and very little of that kind of work still going on, it's a big question about what the real justification for this kind of program is and from any perspective. Now, following on this thread that we're on about what the long-term effects of all of this are, let's move on to part four, impact. The first section of this is a very interesting one, I thought. So El Sistema is a neoliberal project, clearly. But the holy grail of these kinds of projects is measurable results. You can put down on a paper and say, like, the GDP grew by this amount because of this program. And it seems as if, from everything you've been able to tell, that El Sistema doesn't provide that kind of measurable benefit. Yet. That's right. And as so often is the case with El Sistema, there's this interesting tension or paradox. On the one hand, there are lots of what I put very much in inverted commas, in scare quotes, of demonstrations of impact, which always consist of things like huge orchestral performances. That's the classic example. Or taking people around model institutions, model schools. These kinds of demonstrations, again in scare quotes, are often very expensive, they're very costly to put on. But actually, it's not at all clear what a performance of, you know, 600 children playing a Mahler symphony, um, what this actually demonstrates, other than lots of children being taught how to play music in a very disciplined, time-intensive way. Um, on the other hand, there is indeed very little actual evidence of the social impact of El Sistema. There have been a, a couple of attempts to evaluate the programme, and they haven't been very successful and I think the key thing to be aware of here is that the major funder of El Sistema, which is the Inter-American Development Bank, initially accepted one of these evaluations as demonstration of the effect of the programme and then changed its mind and decided that it actually wasn't a rigorous evaluation at all and has for the last couple of years been doing another much bigger, much more expensive evaluation. But this evaluation is not yet finished, or if it has finished, it hasn't reported its conclusions. And so interestingly, uh, Inter-American Development Bank has been funding El Sistema now for, I think, 18 years, and still has no evidence that this money that's put in, which is now around $170 million, whether it's actually had any significant impact on Venezuelan society. So at this point in time, in 2016, all the claims that one hears around the social impact and social effects of El Sistema are based on 
anecdotal and unproven evidence. Now, while the, the economic and social benefits or perhaps harm seem to be hard to track, based on your interviews and your research, it does seem like there have been some pretty definite effects on Venezuelan cultural life, on the culture of classical music and on the culture of other kinds of music and other forms of art. Yes, El Sistema has uh, become a huge organisation that sucked in huge amounts of funding. Um, and in a sense, it's attained a sort of monopoly position over Venezuelan uh, musical life, but indeed over Venezuelan cultural life. I mean, some of the critiques I heard were from people in other arts, the theatre, for example, dance, saying that El Sistema had starved other art forms of funding. So a couple of examples I looked at were the impact on popular and traditional music on the one hand, and on classical composition on the other. And again and again, I heard in interviews with musicians, with composers, complaints about the marginalisation of Venezuela's traditional music by El Sistema on the one hand, and of its failure to support new composition. So, you know, its trademark pieces are Beethoven symphonies, Tchaikovsky symphonies, Mahler. It has some Latin repertoire, Bernstein's Mambo most famously, but there's virtually nothing in the way of new compositions. There are no composers in residence. So over the last 40 years, it certainly had no positive effect and some would argue had a very negative effect on the creation of new musical works in Venezuela. And I think to put this in a broader context, we can think about Venezuelan musical and cultural life as a sort of ecology where heavy investment in one area has unbalanced the, this, this cultural ecology and created problems in other areas, even as El Sistema has flourished. And one of the most dramatic examples of this was I saw when I went to one of Venezuela's most famous conservatoires, music conservatoires, called the Jose Angel Lamas in Caracas. And interestingly, this is the conservatoire where Jose Antonio Abreu studied himself. So this is his alma mater. And when I went there, the building was in such bad state that it had actually been condemned by the fire authorities who said it was not fit for human habitation. And they carried on teaching in there. They kept on going, but it was the building could fall down at any time. They had no roof. It just had kind of sheets of corrugated plastic on, on the roof. And, and it was, it, I mean, it looked like a bomb had hit the place. So as I said, this is one of Venezuela's most esteemed musical institutions and had literally fallen into ruin uh, as El Sistema around it had flourished. And this kind of serves as a symbol, I think, for what has happened across many areas of Venezuelan cultural life, the other side, if you like, to the system of coin. And one of the darkest ironies, I think, is that one of the stated founding goals of El Sistema was to provide enough talented Venezuelan musicians to staff the existing Venezuelan professional orchestras. And then those professional orchestras are now struggling, correct? Those professional orchestras are struggling, like so many uh, cultural organisations in Venezuela. The problem with El Sistema is that it has very much put the focus on youth, and youth goes down very well with funders, so it's quite easy to get funding for youth orchestras. The problem is what happens to these musicians when they're no longer young. Venezuela simply doesn't have the infrastructure to maintain all these young musicians when they become adult musicians and seek to create a, a career for themselves. So uh, what one finds in Venezuela are a number of underfunded and struggling professional adult orchestras alongside conservatoires and other organisations. So there's a real kind of imbalance between supply and demand here. Um, El Sistema is creating this enormous supply of young musicians, many of them very, very talented, in a country where there simply isn't enough demand for them. And that creates an obvious problem. 
I mean, it's a problem that we all deal with, right? But it's it's magnified by by factors of ten, a hundred, maybe maybe more than that. It is indeed, and it, and as you say, it's a, it's a problem one finds everywhere. I mean, certainly here in the UK, you can see that far more students study at conservatoire level than will ever find jobs as professional musicians. But it is magnified in Venezuela because the numbers are just enormous, and yet the infrastructure for the profession in Venezuela is much smaller than it is in a European country, for example. I remember when I first learned about El Sistema, what I thought would happen is that some of these hundreds and thousands of students would go on to be professional musicians, and that the rest would just be lovers of music, and then they would provide the audience for the lucky few. But the intensity of the program doesn't really allow you to be a member of El Sistema all through your childhood and then also prepare yourself for any other sort of life. No, I mean, I think one of the things that struck me coming from the UK, which has a very strong amateur music making scene, was how limited actually the classical amateur scene was in Venezuela. I mean, you thought with these hundreds of thousands of of young people being trained in classical music that, as you say, you know, a few would go on to become professional musicians and the rest would be playing in string quartets and amateur orchestras and goodness knows what else. And I just found very, very little of that. There are examples, but comparatively few. And I think this has to do with the fact that El Sistema is essentially was set up and continues to be a pre-professional training program. And it, it is a pyramid. It funnels people into professional roles and has really very little interest in those who don't want to go down that path. So, you know, when I was 18, for example, I played in a youth orchestra once a week, which was plenty. That was nice. That was fun. But you can't do that in Venezuela. There isn't that option. It's, it's either pretty much a full-time job five, six rehearsals a week, or you have to stop and do something else, and there's no orchestra for you. Now, in the the final section of your book, you look at some of the alternatives to a system that exist, focusing mainly on ones that you think offer a slightly better model. One of the interesting things, and I think this is, this is something that you are very clear about, and I think that it's worth flagging here, Many of these programs look to El Sistema as a source of inspiration. So whatever the downside of the program, uh, it has clearly set the world on fire in terms of the possibilities of youth music education as a form of social action. And for that alone, we ought to sort of look at the good along with the bad. But what are some of these other programs that you think offer more promising alternatives? Well, I think this is... Um... I suppose this is in some ways one of the more speculative parts of my book, probably the most speculative part in the sense that, you know, I did look at a number of examples that both myself, you know, I, I visited and also read about a number of examples, which I thought might constitute more promising models. And uh, for example, uh, I spent some time in Colombia and I went to various kinds of music projects in Colombia, some related to classical music, some completely different uh, hip hop schools, for example. I also uh, looked at examples from Brazil there's a, a national scheme called Pontos de Cultura, which are these kind of culture hotspots, which provide funding for all kinds of arts, culture projects, community projects, which I think provides a positive model. But also, you know, right under my nose here in the UK and London, there are all sorts of really interesting projects. Often very little funding, very little publicity, small scale, you know, struggling to get to keep going, to get by, but actually based on very progressive ideas, very progressive pedagogies, latest thinking in educational research. So they did seem to hold up all sorts of possibilities. And I felt that more dialogue between these kinds of positive models and much more varied models in other countries and the Sistema uh, model, the Sistema sphere would be a very positive thing to happen. Another thing that you bring up in this, this section of the book is that El Sistema does seem to be perhaps changing a little bit just in recent years. A year later, uh, the books come out. Do you feel like that's still the case? 
It's hard to say. Um, Venezuela has changed a lot since I did my field work, which was, I finished four years ago. And the last four years has, has been a very difficult time in, in Venezuela, generally, for, socially, economically. My sense is that changes in the system are probably constrained partly by the broader social and economic environment that it's operating in. I think it, it would take somebody else to do another bout of fieldwork and now to assess those claims, to see whether those sorts of changes are real, whether they're deep, whether they're cosmetic, whether they're rhetorical or not. It's very hard for me to judge from afar. Um, but there has been a, a move towards greater interest in and acceptance of Venezuelan traditional music in the last three or four years, which is a positive sign. How deep those changes go and how deep other kinds of changes to do with pedagogy, to do with curriculum and so on and so forth, are really working the programme. I don't know, um, and I wouldn't like to speculate. So we have just the last questions that we always ask. Is there anything about the book that we didn't get to that you'd like to bring up for the listeners? I think that one of the things that we haven't mentioned, and that I actually mentioned fairly briefly in the book, but I wish I'd uh, devoted more attention to, was the issue of gender, um, particularly of gender discrimination. I did mention this in the book, but it subsequently seemed to me to be something that I underplayed and to actually be fundamental to claims about social justice, social inclusion, and so on and so forth around the programme, which is that although at the bottom end of the programme it seems to be very balanced in gender terms, at the top of the programme, when we look at directors, conductors, the Simon Bolivar Orchestra, there's a very, very heavy bias in favour of men. There are no important female conductors, there are no important female directors, and the Simon Bolivar Orchestra is 80% men and 20% women, and almost all the principals are men. So in a sense, there's a kind of systemic misogyny to the organisation, which is very marked and undeniable. You just have to look at the list of names or the, the structure of the organisation. And I think, well, I mentioned this in a talk recently, and one of the people in the audience said, when you gave the information about gender, I just thought, that's all I need to know. That in itself is really, that's enough information to completely undermine El Sistema's claims for positive social action. And I think this person was right. I think that in itself is so fundamental um, that it, it, one could just take that alone as evidence of a serious systemic problem here. And I think I should have made more of that. And then the last question we always ask is, what are you currently working on? Well, I'm partly still digesting the fallout from the book. Because the L system is such a high-profile program, there's been written a lot about it in the media, there's been lots of films made about it. There's been a lot of, I suppose, what you might call blowback from the media um, towards my book. So there's been a lot of sort of, you know, digesting attacks on me by journalists and also advocates of the program and um, uh, responding to those as well. So uh, I've been blogging quite actively, writing a lot of blog posts, both developing my own thinking and responding to, to the responses of others, to journalistic articles and so on and so forth. So it's actually been keeping me pretty busy. And I haven't really started working on anything else. But I think that looking to the future, there are two things particularly that I would like to do. One is to develop further research, not relating to El Sistema, but more generally on one of the trickiest aspects of the research that I did, which was to do with the evidence of sexual harassment and sexual abuse that I discovered in relation to El Sistema. I think this is an under-researched theme in music education more broadly, in specialist music education. I think it's something that, that desperately needs more research, broader research, international comparative research, in order to, to really put what appears to be quite a widespread problem on the table and much more prominently. 
And, and the other thing I would like to do, I think, is it, I went to researching El Sistema with a very optimistic vision of the program, thinking that what my research was going to be very heavily focused on questions of social justice, music education, transformations of society in Latin America through music education. Um, I didn't find that, um, but I would, st- I would still like to find that. So I think I would like to do, if you like, the other side of the coin of this project now and do more research in Latin America and see what does work. You know, what is having an impact? Um, what is demonstrating the kinds of ideals that El Sistema proclaims, but actually in practice as well as in theory? So I would like to do some more research on the ground with other kinds of projects to try and, I suppose, come up with some answers to the sorts of questions and problems that I raise in the book. Well, those both sound like fascinating and very necessary projects. And I hope that when you get through with them, maybe you'll come back on New Books and Music and talk about the next one. I'd be delighted to. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. 